Hello and welcome to this week's BossCast. I'm Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting and I'm joined by Roger Wade, who has finally made it here after many, many months of back and forth. He's the CEO and founder at BoxPart. Roger, fantastic to see you. You've had a tough couple of years, haven't you? But great to see you looking so well. I'm really excited to have this conversation this morning and talk about some of the things that you see happening in your world of retail, dining, and arguably theatre and entertainment. Because I would say that a visit to Box Park isn't simply about food and drink. It's about that excitement, about an interaction and that community and that vibe that obviously sit very much within your DNA. Thank you for inviting us, Andrew. Why don't we start at the beginning? I mean, you set up Box Park in 2010. You're a mature business. You've got big financial backers now as of last year. But I'm interested in the Roger story because while everyone knows Box Park and will have an opinion on it, actually a lot of the genesis to this started many years before when you were working on the market. You're dead right, Andrew. I mean, my story was after university, I got the sack in my first three jobs during the probation period, literally three months, three months, three months in advertising. And I quickly came to the conclusion, unless I employed myself, I was going to be unemployable. So what did they fire you for? For being absolutely shit, to be honest. No, no, (laughs) you know, you know, I got fired for curiosity. So I think my first job was selling media for Granada TV. And this is in the Tony Wilson era. This was not in the Tony Tony Wilson was probably presenting then, but this is like from their sort of media. Oh, okay. So there's some faceless sale place. Golden Square it was actually at the time. And then I got a sack because I was crap. That was selling TV space. It was way too complicated for me. It was lots of numbers. Well, it was a real shock to my system, actually sitting at a desk all day and doing some work after being a student for three years, basically doing nothing. And then my second job was working as a media buyer, firstly for WCRS and then Low Howard Spink. Both of them, I got sacked within three months. And uh, the reason why was I was never at my desk. I was so curious. I'd be like looking at what was happening within the agency and... You know, to be like, where's Roger? And he's like, yeah, he's in the creative department somewhere. So so you were a frustrated creative shackled in evil sales position. Yeah, I, well, this was buying by then. I was definitely a frustrated creative. And I then just followed what, well, I came to conclusion, unless I employ myself, I was unemployable. So I just followed my heart. And the only thing that I was decent at was I used to run nightclubs when I was a student and I was fascinated with clothing. So I just started importing American clothing from the US. My ex-girlfriend when I was studying was from the States. So I knew the States quite well. And I started import American sportswear. And then I met a couple of designers. And then I guess we started one of the first streetwear brands in Britain, which was Box Fresh, which is back in 1989. And we sort of exploded with the whole rave culture. And I don't know, nearly 20 years later, I sort of you know, had a business that started on a market store to maybe a 20 million turnover business. And I sold it to Pentland Brands and became a, a brand director at Pentland and did that for a couple of years and then got fed up with that and became a brand consultant, got fed up with that and said, right, okay, I've got this crazy idea to do Box Park, a pop-up more built from containers. Amazing. And I remember, you know, growing up in the 90s and that was when rave cultures i suppose just did become this big crossover mainstream thing and you know you turn on top of the pops and you'd see these djs and these artists that and their bucket caps yeah 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 but it was a great time wasn't there and and it's incredible and, it, and it's almost like that won't ever happen again in that sort of they won't have that subversive culture with songs like ease are good yeah. On, you know just the, 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 the ridiculousness <laughs> yeah. when you say it back now yeah, white lines. In, in, in the sort of yeah in the kind of yeah. post cancel culture era that we now live in yeah the concept of some mad guy in a backward baseball cap sitting on your parents tv set at 7 p.m yeah. talking to you about hard drugs yeah. wrapped up in some friendly synthesizers yeah I and mean, it's mad isn't it i mean it, that's really sad you saying that because i think what the, the, what's sad what, what, it's sad that the modern day youth culture will not experience those times and it was incredible times well i think they probably experienced the times it's more the times of it being on national on tv and so i just think it's that but not to the scale 
Because literally, I remember during that period that everyone would just live for the weekend and everyone would be out. You know, nowadays, I think the youth of today, they're sort of glued to their phone and they're more worried about their appearances on their phone. But back in the day, there was a real movement. Everyone was hugging each other because they're all probably off their knees at the time. But you know what? Looking back on it, it was still a pivotal moment in people's lives. And I know so many people that are in their 50s that still think they're ravers, you know, and it was obviously the highlight of their life. I was lucky that I didn't get too deeply involved because I was sort of running a business at the time. But I do look back on it and think from a cultural perspective, it was an incredible movement as the punk movement was an incredible movement, as the mods were an incredible movement. Yeah, and to some degree, the rise of Box Fresh was aligned to that in the way that something like DMs have been umbilically tied to that punk movement yeah. and all of these sorts of things. You know, when you think about the links between fashion and music, whether you're into the Pistols or Weller or T-Rex or Bowie or whatever the hell, right? There's an alignment of, of fashion. And, you know, I grew up listening to, obviously, to things like Suede and Smashing Pumpkins yeah. and things like Weezer and all of those sorts of things. Some of them have survived. And there was a degree to which, you know, you... As a teenager, you'd listen to the Pixies or whatever it would be. You, you'd dress like them and you'd wear that as an emblem of your fandom. If you were a raver, you were obviously a raver. Yeah. Nowadays, I think that, it was, that's it, been lost It was a, a uniform. It was a cultural uniform. And it was, I mean, looking back on it, I don't think we realised what we had. I mean, you know, in the in the late 80s, there was the whole hip-hop explosion and, and house music explosion. I mean, literally, that was the beginning in like 85, 86, 88. You know, there was a whole hip-hop explosion in the UK and and then 89 it then took off with the whole rave culture and we just sort of there was almost a uniform that the kids wanted to wear so mm. Box Fresh came out of that you know it actually came out of an article that the face wrote back in the day for kids wearing brand new trainers and they used to go look at you with your Box Fresh trainers and you know we were directly influenced it. and what set us apart was you know, we knew nothing about fashion. Yeah, we had a couple of designers that were textile designers and print designers, but we were just inspired by what people saw on the streets. And it's so weird now because actually that learning that I had at Box Fresh, where by the end of it, we were creating a thousand products a year, wow. has been so invaluable with, with, with Box Park because yeah. I see change as normal. I see creating stuff and making sure you're not copying anyone else as key to always constantly innovate. And I got that from fashion. I think that's why so many great people have come from the world of fashion or streetwear or music because mm. we're used to evolving all the time. And and definitely when I brought that to the industry of property, I think they were just like, who the hell is this guy, you know? Because I didn't want to do what everyone else did. Well, yeah, I share some of that myself, to be honest with you. And in terms of that evolution and into Box Park, going from being the guy running the stalls to just selling stuff on the stalls, how was that as an evolution? Because it's quite a big change. I mean, going from... Uh, your first obviously was in Shoreditch and that is still the one that people think about when they think about box park. They think about hipsters munching noodles in, yeah. in Shoreditch. I think it really helped me because I was coming from it. You know, somebody once said it's from a poacher turned gamekeeper, but I was coming it from the customer perspective. And I just had a really simple thought when I set up Box Park Shoreditch. And I think it was, I think Steve Jobs famously coined, it was almost connecting up the dots of my life. And the dots of my life was that I always believed in this mantra that people need to feel special. So when we were creating Box Fresh Streetwear, it was giving the kids of the day something that made them feel special, that made them set apart. So, you know, when we set up Box Park Shoreditch in 2010, you know, they were already predicting the death of the high street. And I just never believed that. I just believed that people had a need to feel special, that they wanted to feel special and they wanted to go to small independent shops to feel special. Yeah, yeah. And I set about creating a high street for independent stores. And at the same time, I just had built a store out of a container. And I decided to build a mall out of a container. So talk us through that. So the container structure is a big, big part of the DNA of that. Was that a cost thing? Was it a design thing? Was it just a practicality consideration? It's really weird. I sort of had a psychological 
connection with a container. And I tell you why it was there. Because when I ran a market store, I always sort of dreamt of one day I'll be able to get a, a whole shipping container worth of box fresh and ship it over. So for me, it was a, a sign of success. And, you know, I've got some people that work for me at Box Fresh and they work at Box Park. And they remember that when I used to go to Hong Kong, I'd be obsessed with shipping containers because there's a container, a box, and I'm doing Box Fresh. Yeah, yeah. So we built a store out of a, a shipping container. And then when I was trying to come up with an idea of creating a new high street for independence i was like well let's make them out i've made one store out of a shipping container why can't i make a whole mall out of a shipping container because going back to that connecting up the dots of your life i had a friend of mine that ran a retail mall in america and i thought if he can do it i can do it he's not the most smartest guy and literally I couldn't even find an architect that knew anything about container architecture. I think our first set of architects, they sort of started plonking them in any direction. And, and I read a book on containers saying you couldn't do that because the point loadings are in the corner. I could bore you to death with containers. Well, so, I, so I sacked them. And I basically, out of a book, designed Box Park Shoreditch on a grid system of five containers put together. So they were 40 foot long and 40 foot wide. <laughs> And then once you had that dimension, you could then build the moduli. And literally, I did it from reading a book, from a book that was produced by who I regard as the godfather of container architecture, Adam Colkin. And he was doing container residential houses and stuff like that in America, who's, by the way, an absolute genius. But you know, and all I did was effectively move that idea on to retail. Why yeah. can't you do that for retail? Well, quite. And in terms of the contractual agreements with the retailers, they're not done on conventional leases, are they? Are they licenses? Is it? Is, are they leases? Or it's evolved over time. I mean, this goes back to my naivety. When I first built Box Park, I had a few buy-to-let sort of properties. So I thought it was going to be the buy-to-let industry. I just sort of let them out to these tenants and they would get on with it. And I didn't realise you actually had to run a pop-up mall. And that was a really, really sort of tough lesson to us. So when we first set up, we literally let people, people going, look, I want to sign up for five years. I went, no, just sign up for a year. I'm not bothered. And, you know, I was thinking the rent would go up the next year. But after the year, you know, half the people left us. So it made us then innovate. So now we have really flexible lease terms. You can have a, a license or a lease for one week, one month, three months or 12 months, you know, in some cases even longer. And what we're moving towards is the concept or have moved towards is we're taking the risks with the tenant. So we offer turnover only rents where yeah. effectively, you know, if the tenant doesn't do well, we don't do well. And that, in some respects, is where things have been heading for a very long time. And it's just taken us a couple of crises, a Brexit and a pandemic to get there. Yeah, we've been doing that since sort of day dot. So, you know, out of necessity. And I think, again, it comes back from what other people would regard as my naivety. That's not the way the property industry does it, but that's the way mm. I felt it should be done. So. Well, it's not the way you... I mean, it's funny because we had the boss of Austria which is uh, Germany's biggest listed office landlord on yeah. a few months back on Bosscast. And he was saying exactly the same thing. Actually, UK, what you guys class as flexible, we've been doing for years. Yeah. If you think about, I mean, we're talking about 90s rave culture and top of the pops and all these things that younger listeners might not even know anything about or remember. But <laughs> again, back in the day, you'd have to, when, when websites were first a thing, you'd pay companies, well, people still waste loads of money building websites now. But nowadays you've got, things like strikingly where you can just rent a website, you can pay them 10 quid, you have a website up in an hour. And, yeah. and I think this concept of all of these things that historically were very expensive, had high barriers to entry, now don't. And that, I, I suppose, ultimately comes at a price to somebody. But fundamentally what we're seeing now with retail is that whole value proposition is being shared among many more protagonists, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, the problem that you've got with the retail property industry at the moment is that you've got a legacy, outdated system. And until you address the system itself, you're never going to get change. So it's the equivalent of going, you know, I remember meeting the head of technology of Tesco's once and I said, you know, why haven't you got a cloud-based system? They've probably got one now. But he said, well, we've spent 250 million on this existing hardware that we've got, so we can't go cloud-based. It was obviously that system wasn't fit for purpose. 
And that's the same with the property industry. Their current system isn't fit for purpose. So the whole way the property industry is run is money gets lent to the developer. He'll have to get some sign-up of some leases or pre-sign-ups of leases. And the funder, the pension fund or whatever, would look at the quality of tenant that you've got there. And he'll look at the security of tenure. He'll look at the length of period of that lease. So the decisions that were made about how to fill those shopping centres, how to fill those retail parks was a financial decision. How good is the quality of their covenant? How long is their security of tenure? Mm. Because all the funder is interested in is, I want to get my money back. Well, well do you that's, know, that's fair enough if it's someone's pension pot, no? No, it's not. Because in the modern day world, there's something that's sort of come along, which is just completely, you know, turned that on its head, which is these convenient CVAs. Mm. So to be honest with you, it doesn't matter what covenant you've so got. So that's the company voluntary arrangement whereby people can basically throw their debts into the gutter, walk away, rush their hands, set up a new company from yeah. scratch and get away without paying it. Well, anymore. even worse than that, in a CVA situation, they come to a creditor's voluntary arrangement and basically they wipe off the debt and keep trading with the existing company. And we've just had a spate of those happen during lockdown, okay, which... I'll be frank, I think a lot of them were convenient. I think there was a lot of people that took advantage of lockdown in order to get off their outstanding rents. Because mm. how could the rents be putting them out of business? Because there's a rent enforcement moratorium. So it wasn't. They were using it as cover to say, look, we're going to do a CVA. But what happens as a result of that? It's again doing things the wrong way. Finances dictate the environment that you create. We don't work like that. We never look at a balance sheet. We only look at the strength of the content. And we've got a really, really simple strategy towards retail. And it's coming, again, from the fact that I was a retailer. Yeah. And we think there's only three things that really matter when it comes to being a successful retailer, whether that's hospitality, whether that's online, whether that's leisure, whether that is physically selling goods. There's only, I believe, only three things. And that is content, that's traffic, and that's conversion. If you've got fantastic content, you will be relevant to your customer. But if you haven't got fantastic content, if you're not special to your customer, you won't exist. But you can have the best content in the world. If you don't create traffic mm. to that content, you're not going to make any you're sales. Sure you're not talking about some secret porn website you're running, Roger. <laughs> no, but I'm, I'm sure, again, it works identical in the porn industry. It's all about the quality of the porn, you know. Not speaking from Sorry, experience, I'm, I'm obviously. Being, I'm, I'm yeah. being slightly profane. Yeah. No, I, apo I apologise. But... It sounds really simplistic, but actually, I don't believe no, you're many, right. no, no, many I, businesses no, I'm, I'm understand take, that. I'm, I'm taking the piss out of you, but, but yeah. I, I of course I agree with you, yeah. right? But the problem is, so we're obsessed with our content. We're obsessed to driving traffic to that content. And hopefully, our tenants will get sales, conversion result of that. So let's break those three things down for some of the more conservative listeners to this yeah. podcast because there will be some that have just been shocked by what I've said and I'm very sorry if you have been offended but if you don't like it leave a review at the end in terms of content what does that mean when I get what that means if we're talking about BuzzFeed if we're talking about financialtimes.com if we're yeah. talking about you know Netflix or the porn industry all of which are very legal things but what does content mean in the context of box parks where okay. you might be going to to buy some snazzy t-shirts some exotic food a nice yeah. hamburger or yeah. some craft day yeah. what does content mean so in the case of content our content is the following it is the quality of retail that we've got there so the quality of product that we got and the brand names that we've got the quality of food that we've got there the quality of the drink offering that we've got there mm. and quality doesn't mean just the most expensive it can also mean value for money but effectively the content is the food the drink the entertainment we provide so how do you measure and that the environment so we're trusting you then i suppose your argument to me as a potential investor in box would be actually we're pretty good at curating this stuff yeah that's exactly it how do you measure it well, we can measure it because we measure it directly through the footfall traffic. Well, I was going to say, it's points yeah. two and three are the proof points of whether number one's any good, right? But ultimately, when you say how do you measure it, it comes down to fundamentally one way, which is we use our instinct. So when we're choosing content, we don't look at a spreadsheet. We don't look at a the financial balance sheet. 
we see how much does the customer like that product? What does everyone thinking within our team about that content that we're going to put in there? Like recently, we brought Sides, which is the new retail food concept from the Sidemen, okay? We set up their first ever store, okay? Many people have gone, no way are we doing that. We need you to prove. But we just went, look, the food is good. We tasted the food. Packaging is brilliant. But you know what? They've got millions of followers. They're going to be successful. We put them in Box Park Wembley, queues around the block. But how did we do that? No one was quantifying that. We had to do that by feel. Yeah, and yeah. that's the problem, Andrew, nowadays. Everyone wants a spreadsheet. Yeah. Everyone wants some sort of data that justifies their decision. Well, guess what? We do a lot of things on feel because mm. that's what an artist does. You have to trust your feelings. No, and that's a problem that we've got in the industry. No, and, and, and I agree with you. And I, as somebody that, that, as most people know, I, I come from a creative background 20 years back and I now represent numerous institutional investors, private equity firms, and Blackstock is very proud to work with many different clients, investors, developers, and advisors. And I think when I'm working with my clients and I'm talking to different people, I try and draw on some of those different experiences from producing music and writing and broadcasting as a journalist and advising governments and pitching to investors, raising money myself. And I think many of the things that you describe are an art form as much as anything else. And one of the problems I think that's held people back is this reliance on numbers. But do you not accept, though, that in a landscape where real estate has become more institutionalized and your own business has taken on private equity investment, yeah. you have to accept, surely as an entrepreneur in 2022, that there is going to be a spreadsheet at the end of the rainbow that yeah. says, okay, well, ultimately I'm judging some sort of IRR yield or whatever metric yeah. that one wants to place on this as the defining conclusion about whether you're good at all these things or not. Yeah, obviously. I think we're going to make nearly 5 million EBITDA this year. And pre the pandemic, we were one of the fastest growing companies in the UK, three years in a trot. Of course, we measure numbers. But sometimes you get people asking us, well, how do you decide on that content? Hmm. What are the things that drive you to achieve that financial success? And fundamentally, it's through using feel. Hmm. When I used to run Box Fresh, I made a thousand products a year. There wasn't a spreadsheet that told me that new designer product was great. It was through feeling. It was through trusting your feeling. And one of the things that I do preach and talk to, to young entrepreneurs is learn to trust your inner feeling, because that's when you can truly be great. When you believe inside of you that your own ideas are the right ideas, that's when you can create great change. And I'm sure that's what Steve Jobs felt. I'm sure that's what Elon Musk felt. Mm. They believed in themselves wholeheartedly that what they thought was good was good. I'm not saying I'm like that, but I'm saying I have that same feeling. Yeah. I trust my feelings. How do you apply that then if we're thinking about the wider retail landscape that sits before us, which is not particularly pretty if we're thinking about it in the mainstream? How do you apply that in places that aren't Shoreditch where you've got very wealthy workers and, and yeah. dwellers, Wembley where you've got that, again, a, a big chunky student yeah. population where you've got huge events, football, sporting, music events yeah. that give you that footfall on tap. Yeah. I'm not saying Box Park is about to pop up in Wakefield or Solihull, but how yeah. do you apply yeah, this advice it. and yeah. how do you diffuse in that and how do you apply those solutions into other areas? Yeah, so I mean, you know, trusting your own intuition about a site. So we can break that down in two or three ways. So let's take the example of Box Park Croydon. When Box Park was planning to build yeah. Box Park Croydon back in 2014, 2015. It was just after the riots that they had in Croydon. The Whitgift was on its knees, you know. People were nervous about going in, out in Croydon. because so that was the a shopping centre that Hammerson and Westfield were it, mooted well, to do. Well, they were going to build the Croydon Partnership or Westfield preferred to call it Westfield Croydon, you know. But... The reality is the Whitkiff was the existing shopping centre. Actually, at one stage, it was the largest shopping centre in Europe. So the customer didn't want to go out in Croydon anymore. And I went along to Croydon and everyone told me, you've got to be crazy, Roger. 
to go put something in Croydon. But I passed East Croydon every day on the way to work from Brighton to London. I stopped off at East Croydon. I used to look at the site that was right beside East Croydon Station. And I just ignored all of that. What I saw in Croydon was that if Croydon was a city, it'd be the eighth largest city in Britain, but yet there wasn't any credible food and drink and shopping there. Mm. It's got a population of nearly half a million people. So I saw... The home of Stormzy and Kate Moss as well. Yeah, yeah, you know... David Bowie went to college there and I think he quite famously said, you know, the worst thing I can say about anyone is they're so fucking Groydon. So but he used to know, go back there every year, even you know, he would go back to his school yeah. every year. And there's fantastic schools there, but mm. it's a question of belief. People didn't believe in it, but I just felt that people deserve good food, drink and entertainment. Mm. And it's probably been one of our proudest things, setting up Box Park Croydon. It is incredibly successful to this day, you know, but it's been a slow burning project. And now people are believing in Croydon again, you know, and, and this is what I, I sometimes, it really annoys me. Like I remember growing up in South London when I was a kid, you know, no one would have stepped foot into Peckham. You know, no one would have stepped foot into Shoreditch, by the way, back in the day. They were giving out homes in Shoreditch. Yeah. Well, but, day, but now they? suddenly you get a few trendy businesses there and suddenly it's the most trendiest place in the world. So, you know, I That's think... That's because you forced everyone to pay £10 for a bowl of noodles, Roger. <laughs> I don't sell the noodles, but <laughs> it's free entry to come in a box park. We have lots of events. But I think that you've got to trust yourself. So in that case, you said, how did I trust myself? I ignored what everyone else was saying. I just said, look, people need to eat and drink and have entertainment in Croydon. I knew South London well, and I believe that if we did something right, they would come. Mm. So that's one example. There's two other examples that are probably much bigger, on a much bigger scale, that I'm using my intuition. And that is, firstly, there's the talk about the death of physical retail, the death of the high street, you know, and... I just don't buy into it at all. And again, it comes down to trusting my intuition mm. because myself as a customer, when I'm buying this jacket, buying this t-shirt, mm. buying these jeans, I want to make sure they fit well. I want to touch the cloth, Yeah, you know. But in fairness, and, but I guess the counter argument would be you're a gentleman of a certain age. You obviously are not short of a few, Bob, and you can take the time to go and do that. If I'm you know, a, a struggling actor or actress or musician in my low 20s doing some crappy job that I hate just to make ends meet. I didn't have the time to go and do that. I don't have the money to go to the amazing places that Roger Wade shops at. So that's why I'm probably prepared to buy some crappy clothes off assos.com. Yeah. Well, you know, in the case of today, I'm wearing some Gap jeans and a Marks and Spencer t-shirt. So you know, I'm not going too, <laughs> too far. And in the case that you've just given there of the musician... I'm sure any great musician wouldn't want to buy his favorite guitar online. He would like to go to that store. He'd like to pick it up. He'd like to feel it, you know, and... But then look at how Denmark Street's been decimated. Denmark Street in the West End near Charing Cross, where you would historically have gone yeah. and bought gone and got instruments, yeah. Well, that's the sad thing. That's the point I'm trying to make. The point I'm trying to make is that we should not write off physical retail mm. because fundamentally i believe the customer loves to go to stores well, they okay? do but let me put it another way then but obviously a lot of you've got a lot of f&b in box parks yeah and clearly that's a big part of any local retail offer food and drink how does that square with a landscape of twats of Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday workers. So I'm not being offensive to Roger. I'm using this newfound acronym of, 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 of people that, that come into work between Tuesday and Thursday. And there'll be lots of people listening to this podcast that work for big companies, that work for the banks, the agency, county firms, the law yeah. firms that are sat on their nice plush sofas on a Monday morning doing their calls. Yeah. And how does that work? Because again, that's 40% of the time where a lot of people aren't anywhere near the office which is a lot less stuff they're going to buy. So, I mean, my point in case there is with the example, I won't use the word, but, you know, whether you're an accountant, whether you work in an office, you still want to feel special. And when you translate that to the world of food and drink, I'm looking at like Deliveroo versus eating in. 
And in that case, I also see that as a challenge yeah. to the future of our high streets, the future of our town centres. Well, absolutely. Because yeah. Deliveroo wants to build dark kitchens, and I'm completely opposed to that. I believe in open kitchens. So if I have the opportunity of going out and eating with my friends and paying the exact same price for that meal, but eating in the restaurant, or I can get that at home online, nine times out of ten, if I've got the time... I would prefer to eat with my friends. Mm. I think that's what people want inside of them. I think they have a need to come together, to have a, a sense of community. And the one thing that COVID and the pandemic has taught us, Andrew, is that need is even greater. Because when we weren't able to have that, people were desperately missing that. Yeah. So no, I don't buy into the future that the future of food and drink is going to be dark kitchens and you know they're made in some industrial state and we don't know who's actually making them. No, I don't buy into the future that the future of the fashion that I buy is going to be coming from Amazon of this world. I love independence. I believe in that future. I believe that people want to feel special. And when everyone else is zagging, I am zigging. Mm. I'm running into physical retail because I believe the experience of physical retail, you can't be. In the same way today, meeting you face to face is 10 times better than doing this on Zoom. Because it just is. You can't replace that 360-degree sensory experience that you get when you meet somebody else. It's like going Absolutely, to the shop. Yeah. And also the sound quality, which and, and regular listeners will know how anal I am about sound quality. <laughs> and I, I'd like to think that, I now know. This is the, uh, yeah, the best sound of business podcast there is. None of this recorded down Zoom, down phone. It, it, it does amuse me that, that I listen to podcasts from big, big companies and they sound like they've been recorded in someone's toilet. But anyway, glad to have you here, Roger. Another thing I wanted to ask then is i suppose given all of this how do you think the retail landscape does need to be reset because we've having all of these discussions back and forth over the last how many years i mean since i mean i was at the bpf for for five years and it was yeah. going on then all these discussions on business rates and how we reset the system their current proposals that have come out earlier this year yeah. on online digital taxes and as you say you're competing not just against working from home, you're competing against Get Here, against Gorillas, yeah. against the Deliveroo's, the Just Eats, the Uber Eats of this world. And suddenly there are many more players in a marketplace which never had a high margin mm. to start with. How does the system need to be reset? Okay. So first and foremost, I don't think that any sort of, I hate the word, but I describe it as physical retailers versus online retailers. I don't think any physical retailers are looking for a begging bowl. I don't think we're looking for any additional help that other people don't get. We're just looking for a level playing field or I'm looking for a level playing field for the retailers. Yeah. So, you know, if we are now... What does that mean in, in well, short I, form? I, I'll say, I won't, you know. If our competition is online, you've now got big box, pure play, yeah. uh, yeah. e-commerce businesses, which let's say... Amazon is your classic example. It's easy to pick on Amazon, but there's lots of them anyway. Okay. Well, we're competing with them day-to-day, -day, physical retail. Okay. Mm. Well, we've got to be paying the same rates that they're paying. So if they've got a big, massive shed sitting out in the middle of Milton Keynes or wherever it is, or Northampton, wherever, how do you expect a small independent in Whitstable that's selling the same product to compete with them. We need to create a level playing field to ensure that we keep our high streets, we keep our town centres. So the first example of that, how do we create that, is let's have a quality with business rates. Let's stop debating this because by the time we debate this, our high streets are going to be dead. Our town centres are going to be dead. And people haven't realised the impact of that. They think that's okay. No, it's not okay. Because let me tell you yeah. what can happen when that happens. Because we had it in Croydon. Croydon with the Whitgift Centre was the largest shopping centre in Europe. When the Whitgift Centre was decimated and no one went into Croydon, you had businesses moved out, like Nestle's moved out. You had office workers moving out. You then had people not wanting to, to live in that area. You had the rise of night crime in that area. So when you take out something like town centres and your shopping and your community feel, it's a delicate ecosystem. There's a knock-on effect. 
People don't want to work in areas where there isn't good shopping, where there isn't places to eat and drink. And if people don't want to put offices there, then suddenly people don't want to work there. And then if people don't want to work there, suddenly you have major antisocial issues, mm. which we can't deny is not happening. Look at some of the redundant towns that we have up and down the north of England and in, increasingly in the south of England. So we need to start thinking beyond. I've heard major people in government have said things like, oh, we can't stop the death of physical retail. It's dead. What an absolute load of rubbish. Yeah. You can do lots to stop it, but you've not carefully considered the implications of not stopping it. And we need to think about that desperately. My view on this, having lobbied for property companies for a while and lobbied for airports, I think there just needs to be a degree of coherence in that story. It's about storytelling. You know, you've been doing this for longer than I have, and you're clearly very good at it, right? I think there has to be a way for you as an operator, as a brand builder, as a retailer, as a property company, whatever you refer to yourself as, all of the above, right? I think there's a need here for everyone in this space to be making this a vote loser. Because at the minute, the government ain't going to lose any votes by what it's doing. Otherwise, it would have changed. If the government mm. saw that there were votes to be lost by not equalising rates, for example, or by not creating some other pathways for a level playing field, then those things will be done. And I think what needs to happen is for you to be mobilising your customers and you and everyone else that has mm. retail centres, because ultimately they're the people the government listens to. Government doesn't give a, mm. a monkeys about you. It doesn't give a monkeys about property companies. It doesn't give a monkeys about... It cares about votes. Yeah, and this is why if you look again, let's look at the last three years and see how government's responded to the commercial property industry. It's responded with arguably politely the hand and more realistically the finger. Yeah. So why Definitely. is that? Why is that? It's because it doesn't care. It's because there's no votes to be lost in trashing real estate. So what you need to do, and this is my challenge to you, Roger, is you need to be corralling other people, all the other shopping mall brigade, and you need to be engaging your customers, and they've got to be the people making that noise. And if they make that noise, they look, we want these places. Yeah. We want to be living, working, eating our £10 noodles in places that don't have yeah. knife crime, antisocial behaviour. Government, if you don't do something, we're not going to vote for you. Yeah. Suddenly that happens, yeah. and this could be done. You know, Think about the brands you've built. Think yeah. about all the people you know in fashion and music. Yeah. Get a few of these guys together. Yeah. You know, That's the thing. I, I think, from my perspective, I'll let me turn some of your words back on you. The yeah. time we finished with people coming on my podcast to yeah. moan about business rates, yeah. it could have been solved. Yeah. Well, it, well, it, there's, it, there's my monologue. Well, I'm well, sorry, okay. sorry for that. Well, I'm, I'm going to turn that on his head because actually <laughs> I'm here today to publicize that. And to be honest, you know, there's nothing that I find more sickening than the populist government that we've currently got. So, and I've tried to appeal to them. I've spoken yeah. directly to Alex Sharma. I've yeah. been involved with government think tanks. But every time you say something that doesn't actually toe the party line, they want to ignore it. I've spoken to the head of small business, Paul Scully. I've invited him to come to Box Park. He told me he was going to do it. He never turned up. But, you know, they only are interested in the people that will just nod along and just agree with what they're going to do. So the reality, by me being here today, I'm doing my bit, which is saying, look, we are sleepwalking into some major problems with our town centres up and down the UK. And we're doing that because of the threat of technology. The threat of technology, and I'm not going to go beyond here, but it's beyond that. It's the threat of, you know, the way that our kids today are obsessed with, not just our kids, everyone is obsessed with their mobile phone and don't take the time anymore to take, you know, lift their head up and actually experience things around them. But in the same way, I'm saying before it's too late, do something about our town centres and make sure we don't lose our town centres and high street to technology. It's in the same way. Before it's too late, do something about Facebook, which is creating hate culture in Britain and supports hate culture because the algorithms love negative comments but don't promote positive comments. Mm. We need to have a wholesale rethink of the way technology is affecting our society. In my particular case, it's having a massive effect on the town centres and high streets. And I'm saying to everyone out there that's willing to listen, the effect of that is far greater than losing some shops on the high street. It's going to be mm. a complete breakdown of the fabric of our society. 
don't pretend I'm overestimating it. It's happened. Look at some of the towns up and down the UK. I remember being brought to Ipswich 10 years ago by the then MP of Ipswich, Ben Gummer. And I think they had three shopping centres that were in dire straits because they just built a new shopping centre in Kings Lynn. And no one believed in Ipswich anymore. And Ipswich is beautiful, by the way. But that was because they lost their town centre. No one was shopping there anymore. So we need to think about it. And actually, I challenge you, Andrew, as somebody that's in PR, somebody that is working directly with some of those property industries, for us to all collectively get together and start to urgently do some things about this. We've been all been talking, I've been talking about business rates for five years. No one's listening to me. I've been talking to all the government about business rates, saying the time for discussion is over. It's proven. If you don't want to have town centres and high street, do exactly what you're doing at the moment, nothing. Mm. All right, I, I say that challenge and we'll pick that up after the podcast. One thing I want to come on to though, before we run out of yeah. time, you touched them as a very powerful piece, very powerful set of words there, Roger. Thank you. You mentioned hate crime. You mentioned some of those darker aspects of social media that we'll all reference. And I did want to come on to the debate on diversity, which is something I, I am yeah. really keen to try and do more on in these podcasts. And you know, I'll be very honest, when we do these bosscasts, interviews it's very difficult for me to find people that aren't posh white and male uh, and I, I, I say this as someone <laughs> half Malaysian half Irish well, well, from yeah, South so, London so, so you've ticked a couple of boxes there and again I, I put a shout out to anyone in the sector in real estate and tech in retail that's listening to this yeah. that can suggest more diverse guests because I think we're very keen to do that but ultimately yeah. when you've got a podcast series about company bosses you can only interview yeah. the people that are there but I, I am interested to talk now about some of your experiences mm. growing up and your own racial mix and how that's influenced some of your own decisions and, and made you reflect differently. And I think I'm interested also in how you think the real estate, the retail world has evolved or if it, yeah. if it, if it hasn't. I, I mean, you know, I've only got a small brain. So before I forget everything, I'm just going to go straight to the chase and talk about my industry, the property industry. Okay. And I'm quite outspoken about this subject. There's a lot, I've got quite a lot of LinkedIn followers and there's there's a big LinkedIn thread at the moment about my feelings about the property industry. And, you know, I remember turning up to a, a director, the top, say, 50 CEOs in the property industry. It was a dinner pre-pandemic and there was not a single woman in there. You know, there was two or three people that were not white and middle class, you know, or let's just say, white or an Anglo-Saxon. And clearly there is something wrong there. You know, there's absolutely no justification of that. The problem is that at the moment, the property industry is like an old boys club. It's a big network. They all do deals with each other. They all know each other. But we need to be conscious of the fact that we need to have more diversity amongst the property industry, both racial diversity and diversity of sexes, you know, and I think it's an absolute disgrace when you have that situation, when there's not a single woman in that mm. room. And somebody recently said to me, what do you do, Roger, to promote diversity? And my answer is really simple. I employ the best person for that job, irrespective of their colour or their sex. Mm. That's it. Simple as that. And that's the challenge that I put out to the entire property industry. Are we employing the best people for the job, irrespective of their sex or their race? Because I don't think we are. Because, listen, there's no argument that's going to say that men are... 100% better in the property industry than women. That's no, just no. absolutely but, but purely I, ridiculous. But I think what is true is that finding those people that do come from different backgrounds can be challenging because of the barriers that exist in education and the existing areas of training and networking. And I say this as someone that's partially sighted. I've had yeah. an eye condition with me since I was a kid. 
And, you know, I've got a big mouth as we've, we've established yeah. on this podcast and that's got me by. But, I, you know, I have no night vision. So seeing yeah. networking dues is an absolute impossibility. Yeah. And ultimately I go out and people know this. They've known me for years and they'll come up to me and say, hey, Andy, how are you doing? It's, yeah. it's, it's Jack or it's Ray or, it, or it's Roger. Yeah. But I can't see in those areas. So how, what would I do? If I was a young guy, yeah. um, I'm sort of crusty and old now, but if, if I was a young graduate coming out of university, I'd be screwed. So my challenge to you as a business owner is, yeah, look, we can employ the best person, but mm. I suppose speaking for other people, what they'll say is that, well, we'd love to employ more people that don't come from those backgrounds, but if they're not coming through the education system or they're not staying in employment because this current government and previous governments mm. don't want to keep working women in society, we don't have any kind of meaningful mm. support for young mothers, there's no proper childcare system mm. in this country like we have in Europe. All of those things create this attrition rate of working mums, for example. Mm. So there's a whole web of problems here, no? Yeah, but I just don't buy into it really, you know, because, you know- I'm not defending, no, I'm not, they, I'm not, they, I'm not they, defending, I'm not yeah. defending what you described, but I'm just saying to but, you- But they are bit, out there. But I'm you just know, saying it's a bit more complicated okay. than, than- So let's give you some possible answers to that, okay? So let's take the property advisory industry and a lot of the property- directors. One of the biggest employers, absolutely. Yeah, okay, so let's look at those. What you will find out that 50% of the people that work in the property industry probably went to Reading to study real estate or... Sadly, not the Reading Festival. <laughs> yeah, not the Reading Festival. <laughs> or they went to Oxford Brooks or something similar, okay? So it starts at the very beginning with those colleges making sure they've got racial diversity, that they've got diversity amongst the sexes, amongst their intake, because that's the input that And happens. that's kind of what I was saying. That, yeah. That's, that, so, that's so a much more you, articulate version yeah. of what I was trying to get well, to. I'm, you know, I'm just raising the issue. And if yeah. you're asking me, what's the solution? Here's a potential solution. So let's firstly encourage more diversity when it comes to the colleges and there's very specific colleges in the property industry but let's also have people in the property industry putting their hands up and going yeah it is a disgrace you know I, I put a post out last week on LinkedIn about it I think I'm yet to see any of the major CEOs of other property industries yeah comment on my post, you know, and I know they all follow me, you know, I know, you know, let, where, where's the British land in this? What yeah, are they, what a, they a saying? The, this? A lot of those where's individuals, they don't write their own posts on LinkedIn, you know that. Yeah, but you know, <laughs> you know, have the bravery to come out and say something and recognise that we're not doing a good job as an mm. industry and we need to change that. I mean, if it was Chris Grigg, a previous British land CEO, yeah. had said that, I know Simon does feel the same and I think, yeah. I guess, you know, in, in the defence, I mean, well, I don't represent British land, so I can't speak for them, but I guess thinking generally as, as listed companies, they may be a bit fearful about getting into yeah, they, debate on social yeah, media. Yeah, but they, let's be honest, you know, you're never going to get a CEO that says, I don't believe in it. You know, that's, just, listen, words are cheap. <laughs> Action is where it's at. So what I like to see is action in our industry. I like just to see do things more. In my particular case, we try our best to create a diversity across the entire mm. company. But there's also some other realistic problems. And I can hear the guys out there shouting and going, yeah, I've tried, but then they've gone off on maternity leave. And we've got that situation at the moment. Two of our most senior executives, virtually my right-hand woman that I set up the business with is off on maternity soon. Yeah. Our head of finance is off on maternity and we need to look at that whole maternity system at the moment. And we need to make sure that the onus isn't on just the women to take maternity leave, that that can be spread amongst their partner in terms of paternity leave, and that we look at the amount of time that they take off or look at creating creches, look at nursing facilities. We need to do more that allows women to come back into the workforce because at the moment it's understandably very difficult it is you know if you have a baby you don't want to rush back after three months i totally get that mm. so what can we do to make it easier for them how can we make it that a woman can have a job and also be a mother mm. you know and a man can have a job and also take his responsibilities in terms of being a parent as well. Mm. That's what we need to address. And, and these things could be done. We I have, don't know we the answer, but they well, don't but, seem but, I mean, I, I think me. it's quite simple. I think, you know, you look at it in pure commercial terms, you've got a big multi-let building. 
there'll be a coffee shop on the ground floor, right? Because yeah. whoever owns that building, I said, okay, we've got five floors or 10 floors of mm. offices. We can afford to fund this coffee shop. Uh, and we reckon if we have this trendy coffee shop here, we'll get higher rents on the building. And what yeah. about if that included a crash? We've got business improvement districts, which yeah. are there to suck money and, and spend that on marketing mm. and security. Now, again, to your point, and I, you know, looking at this, we're just about to have our first child. So this is something that I am ranting more about than I perhaps mm. would have been. Um, and it does incense me, you know, as, and as a small business owner here employing 20 people, you know, we've got uh, one of our directors is also having mm. a, another kid soon, having his third kid. And again, we're creating the paternity policies at Blackstock and we're responding to these things. And it's, you know, and that, what I'm trying to do as a business owner is, is think, well, what, what does good look like? And yeah. let's add 10% to it so that we're better. Yeah. But you're right, the big employers, we don't need to name people, but big consultancies, the accountancy firms, the banks that have got that scale, right? They employ thousands of people mm. globally and in the UK. They've got enough property they could do that. And I would say, look, let's take the top five surveying firms in London. If they all club together and they could easily fund a couple of crashes, north, south, east, west London between exactly. them. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I, I, and I, I think in certain countries, I mean, if I'm not incorrect, I think in Germany, it's actually law. Mm. I think you have to create crash facilities. But look, I'm not, and that's not my expertise. All I, I'm I know, trying to do. But it's not about expertise, is, it's just about common sense. Yeah, I'm trying to highlight in my industry, I'm embarrassed by the fact we don't have enough women mm. in the property industry. That's not the same in the hospitality industry that I'm also in. There's a lot more diversity in that industry. But let's have diversity in both industries. And I'm just standing up as a man mm. to say, look, I don't feel it's right. And I'm a CEO of a property company. So I just feel as though more CEOs need to stand up and go, yep, yeah, we need to do more. Yeah. And this is what we're going to do. What about race? How, what's your experience been of racism throughout oh. your career and, and well, in the different markets you've been in? I mean, you know, my experience of, of racism has been started from when I was a kid, when I was a victim of racism. So, and I'm not using that in, in any way as a crutch, but, you know, no, I, I, I came back from... You know, Malaysia, as a, as a young child, when I was about six, I was born in South London. We went back to Malaysia. My parents, unfortunately, split up. And I came back to South London, you know, and, and we moved into a, a bed sit, me and my mum and my sister. And, you know, I went to a, a local primary school and they thought I was black. You know, they didn't realise I was actually half Malaysian because they didn't really understand what Malaysian was. So I think I got called all names when I was younger because I was different. And so for me, you know, the first thing I really want to point out is that I'm really appreciative of Britain because it has given me incredible opportunities. I literally grew up in from a council estate. I managed to go to a good school that was paid for by, you know, the British government. You know, I know I'm a British citizen, but, you know, I went to a good university and at that time I was paid to go to university and I had fantastic opportunities mm. when it came to an entrepreneur. So the first thing yeah. I want to point out is I think that, you know, Britain can be an incredible environment to grow up with if you're from a different race, but there's still a lot more to do. As I've grown older, I've started to realise the subtle racism that there is out there that I don't think other people appreciate sometimes. And it's to do with the opportunities that people get. It's things like when you, you go along to that property dinner that I was talking about and you only see one or two different races there and there's 48 Anglo-Saxon white guys there. You know, you do think, look, there's something wrong here, you know, and, and unfortunately... We've gone backwards, I believe, when it comes to racial integration. And and the mm. reason why we've gone backwards yeah. is we've created a society nowadays where money talks. When I grew up, I could go to a good grammar school and no one would bother paying for private schools because some of the best education you get was grammar schools. Yeah. But nowadays, unfortunately, in order to get a decent education, you unfortunately have to pay for education. And that's created a two-tier society. And as a result of that, I don't think we're getting the sort of racial integration that we should be getting. I don't think we're sort of getting the opportunities that races should be getting. And I think we should do more. What does that then mean for how education policy should be shaped over the coming years? Because this was a big, big thing, well, I guess 20 years ago under Blair, because it was education, education, education was his mantra. And then he yeah. decided everybody should go to university. And that turned out to not be such a great idea, uh, as we subsequently found out. Yeah. But, but that aside, 
we do have this system now where in many cities do just drive themselves through private healthcare, private education. And it is certainly, there's certainly a valid argument that it's creating this two tier system. I mean, firstly, you know, I'm only giving social commentary about what I see there, but you know, my own personal thoughts on it, I think there's two different ways to go. I think the concept of this utopian society of, you know, one size fits all clearly doesn't work. And we clearly tried that with the comprehensive school system and it hasn't worked. I'm sorry. I don't care what anyone says. You can pretend you've got this utopian society and it's all morally right and it's correct we got but it didn't work you know because what happened is it's just you know you had very very bright kids that couldn't afford to go to good schools that went to comprehensive schools and they didn't get a very good education because effectively they're all thrown into the same class with everyone else and you got some people that did well and the whole education standard sort of went downhill and I I can say that I went to the largest comprehensive school in London and I'm I'm not worried about saying that the reality is that I don't believe it worked you know Mm. so I think we can revisit that and maybe create academies in which some of our brightest kids that can't afford to get private education can get a really good education system you know down in Brighton we've got a really good sixth form college which is Basvic and you know it has I think the most successful Oxbridge entrance across all the schools in Sussex and we've got I think one of the most successful schools in the UK in Brighton College and that's fantastic but also I think we need to look at the taxation system you know I I might come at it from a different angle which is I think what we need to do is allow people that can't afford private education to be able to maybe afford private education and that's to copy a similar system to what America's got which is almost when it comes to taxation you have a pay for what you you actually use so if you decide to put your kids through private education and I'm talking about a person that's not making a lot of money but wants to make the sacrifice that you can get a tax rebate for that so as a result of that you can take less pressure off the public system you know so I think we need to look at big yeah. you know major strokes that resolve the issue because i think you get a double whammy there you know at the moment with private education if you're wealthy you can afford it but there's a lot of people out there that can't afford it because to send your kids to private education what you have to do is you pay your 40 percent tax and then you pay for the private education you know there's no tax subsidy for doing that mm. maybe if you got a 50 percent break on your tax for doing that and you only paid 20 percent tax on the contribution you made, it would encourage more people to send their kids to private school that couldn't afford to send them to private school and maybe would also alleviate the pressure of the existing school system. It might be a double whammy, Mm. but we need to have these big strokes nowadays. Now look, that's my own personal thought. I don't want anyone out there sort of screaming that I'm sort of some raving sort of, you know. Raving raver. Yeah, you know, I'm not. I just believe that we need to create an equal education system and i don't believe in an equal education system at all sticking with that point about going to that ceo dinner and seeing mainly white faces what would you say to organizations running these sorts of events whether that is trade bodies whether that is the um, public sector events or conferences and things what would your message be to those people, how can they open up these events, make them a little bit more representative of the societies that they claim to reflect? Well, I'm not saying this This is every industry. I mean, if you take the music industry, the creative industry, I think, take the fashion industry, you know, there's been massive strides that have been made in those industries. I never really saw it. Well, in, music's in that pretty, I mean, music's got more elitist now, I'd argue. If you look at, I mean, in terms of artists breaking through, coming through Brit school, those yeah. days of people coming off off the council estates and forming bands, that's long gone. Yeah. Well, look, I'm not going to tread on your obvious area <laughs> of expertise, but I'm not saying that we've got, you know... But there's a, a wider problem. It's, it's a business epidemic. problem. It's not yeah. just property, though. It's, yeah. This is every, in the city, in the business world. Yeah, it's definitely. A, I, I think I, I put a picture up, which I was told at the time, and I'm not 100% sure, but it was the top 50 CEOs in Europe, and everyone was white there, mm. and everyone was a male. So... I think somebody then later said, no, it's the top 50 security advisors in Europe and it's backed by Goldman Sachs, whatever, okay? It was still 50 white men, Mm. you know, and I think we need to have more diversity. Personally, I don't think we'd have the problems that we have at the moment with things like, 
you know, Russia and Boris Johnson and Donald Trump. If we had more female leaders, I would like to see that. You know, I would like to see softer leaders. I think this whole alpha male ego thing has got out of control. Like and when it gets to, and yeah. this trust. Well, <laughs> definitely not those two. So, but look, you know, the, the reality is, you know, I think we've all had a major shock to our system when we, we've had a situation when Putin is talking about maybe leashing a nuclear war on everyone. Mm. Look, let's get away from that egotistical male leader Definitely, you know, across the board and let's have more diversity. That's all. As simple as that. It'd be a better world. I don't think anyone can disagree with that. And then if anyone that disagrees with that, I think they're a complete fucking arse. Well, that's a great place to leave it, Roger. Fantastic. Yeah. What, a, what a conversation. What a, we've covered so much ground. Thank you. Really impassioned, uh, really impassioned speech there and, and some, some amazing views. And I'm sure there'll be a lot, hopefully, that we can pick up on, on LinkedIn and on, on, on social media off the back of this uh, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. Search Propcast on Spotify, Apple, whatever you listen to it on. You can subscribe. Please do leave some comments and, and, and absolutely go and put some points on Roger's LinkedIn and, and on mine. Thank you again, Roger Wade from Box Park, Boss of Box Park. I've been Andrew Teach. I'm the founder of Blackstock Consulting. You've been listening to Bosscast. Thank you so much for taking the time and we'll see you again soon.